Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Good morning and welcome uh, to the Institute of Directors and to today's comment conference, Talent Today, Talent Tomorrow. Uh, I'm Simon Walker. I'm Director General of the Institute, which is um, hosting you here today. Um, We have huge respect for editorial intelligence and all that it has achieved and fostering ideas in important areas like skills and talent is something that's hugely important to the IOD as well. So I completely endorse the uh, point that's made in the in the brochure about this, that the Ideas Conference is here to stay. Um, we at the Institute of Directors also believe very strongly in, in the power of ideas. Uh, and we're also trying to tilt our membership much more in, in the direction of people who are making their way in business rather than people who've already arrived. So if any of you are interested, I'd encourage you to, to join the IOD. There are brochures over there and in the room opposite where there's tea and coffee afterwards. So just help yourselves. The IOD, of course, is also a business and an employer um, with all that that means. So we're very aware of the skill shortages uh, that there are in the workforce. And I know that because many of our key areas are dependent on people who've come from outside the UK. Uh, and, and we are constantly asking, what's, where are we going wrong in terms of our own uh, work culture and training systems that we aren't necessarily producing the right level of skills and the right degree of motivation both for this organization and its feedback we get constantly from many of our members. We took five graduates in this year um, as, as management trainees. Um, but uh, we've got the forces, the, the business forces that apply to all UK business at the moment, and I'm not sure if we can afford to do the same next year, but it is something that we give high priority to. And the whole question of how the British economy is going to succeed in the future Um, what sort of training and skills uh, are needed for that is something that dominates a lot of our thinking uh, because it's certainly not going to be on the basis of low skills, low added value and uh, uh, cheap labour. So welcome, delighted to to have you here. Uh, I will get back a little bit during the the day, but uh, for the moment, can I introduce our very first speaker, Koi Tu, who's the founder of Investar, who's a a leadership and teamwork consultant, who's worked with teams at Coca-Cola, BP, Deutsche Bank, UBS, Tesco, uh, and a number of other organizations. He's an LSE graduate and worked uh, with Booz Allen Hamilton before starting his own company, Investar, in 2006. Coin. Thank you, Simon. Uh, I was reminded, um, speaking to Simon, about his past career. Uh, He was, of course, chief executive of the British Venture Capital Association. And uh, one of the founding fathers of venture capital used to have this great phrase, George Dorio was his name, and he used to talk about, which I think still very much applies today, better to invest in an A team with a B plan than an A plan with a B team. 
Uh, in the very competitive world we live in today, it's fast, it's connected, the source of value is increasingly human capital and intellectual capital. And that source of value comes and resides in people, in talent. And that is, of course, what we're here to talk about. Um, talent today and talent tomorrow. And that's an interesting question. How do we get the most of the talent today and how do we get the most uh, and the best talent tomorrow? Um, I want to start, and it's sorry if it's a, a little obvious place to start. Uh, I was speaking with Ravi earlier from the FT and he said, you know, isn't it a shame that we always go back through the same old companies, but I didn't have time to change the whole speech, so <laughs> apologies for that. Um, I want to start with uh, Steve Jobs because probably, you know, he's the icon of our age. He is the, I suppose, the definition of top talent. Um, and top talent is interesting because uh, I suppose in my experience of working with some of the uh, interesting and top talent of, uh, in the world of sport, in the world of business, in the world of government, um, I, I agree with George Bernard Shaw. I think all progress depends on unreasonable people. The reasonable person will adapt himself to the world. They'll accept the world to, for what it is. It's only the unreasonable that are prepared to change the world, to try and make the world adapt to them. So one of the things about top talent is that it's unreasonable. Now, Jobs was famously unreasonable because of his vision, his desire and ambition, his audacity to want to put a dent in the universe. That's quite a powerful idea. I mean, he was so convinced by this, he got John Scully, at the time CEO of Pepsi, to join him to become CEO with the challenge and the choice, you can change the world or continue to sell sugared water. That's kind of unreasonable. But Jobs was also unreasonable in perhaps the more traditional sense of the word. He was famous for his leadership quality and his style, which was known as management by character assassination. He would routinely steal the best resources from his own company. He'd routinely berate his colleagues, calling them bozos, or if you forgive my Californian, shitheads who suck. Uh, this is a, an unreasonable quality that perhaps we find in some of the best people. Now, what's interesting, I suppose, is uh, he founded that company, but he actually ended up falling out with everyone in it. He fell out with Steve Wozniak, his founder, co-founder, he fell out with the very person he'd recruited, John Scully. And actually, he found himself isolated and eventually forced out of the company he founded. Forced out of the company he founded. He may have had all of the vision. He may have had the audacity. He may have had the obsession with insanely great products and for simplicity itself and elegance. But he was on the outside. He was on his own and unable to execute. He had to learn the lesson of teamwork the hard way. Now, having been fired from the company founded, it was perhaps his experience at Pixar that actually really shaped his ability to act as a great teamwork, uh, as a great leader, and as a great top talent. Pixar, he bought from Lucasfilm, uh, bought from George Lucas, the founder of Star Wars. And um, initially, when he bought that company, he had a vision for it of being a software and a hardware organization. In the same way that Apple was the idea of democratizing computing power and making tools for geniuses, Pixar was going to be the same in the world of computer graphics. The people that he bought, Ed Catmull, John Lasseter, had a different idea. They wanted to make computer animated movies. But at the time, Steve Jobs, in his iconoclastic way, didn't have that vision. It took, actually, movies created by Lasseter and Catmull as adverts for that technology 
to change Jobs' reality distortion field, to get him to relook at the company in a different way. It was specifically a movie called Luxo Jr., uh, created for the Cygraph Festival and conference, and the movie's about a standard lamp, uh, and it's about a standard lamp father and a standard lamp son. In fact, the standard lamp you'll see now is the Pixar logo. And it's a very famous movie, partly because it's about the relationship between two lamps, but it's a paternal relationship between a father and a child. And there was something about the magic of that, the emotions combined with the technology on the screen, that when the light went on on that screen, it also went on in his mind. He suddenly saw what they saw. He finally admitted, perhaps in secret and perhaps for the first time, that he was wrong. The future of the firm didn't lay in the technology itself, but what the technology could do. And the technology could enable magic, the telling of fantastic narrative, the telling of brilliant stories. Jobs understood that his team had given him a great gift, that his team had expanded his view of what was possible. That lesson of teamwork, that lesson is really important. Uh, a lot of business today is still obsessed by a very old-fashioned notion of the great man, the Lone Ranger coming to save the day. Perhaps even you know, a fantastic superhero or super secret agent falling from the sky to save us all. And yet that notion of a great man is antiquated, it's old, in a connected society it has no place. In any of the very compelling and, and I guess complex challenges that we face, one person alone is never enough. It will typically take collective action. And that idea, that understanding, I think was one of the most important things that Jobs took back to the Renaissance at Apple. And one of the people that benefited from this uh, was uh, our Chingford boy, Mr. Essex, Sir Johnny Ive. Now, Jobs actually played a really powerful role. He understood that creativity, that the fragility of ideas, needed to be protected, nurtured, and cultivated. If you're looking for great talent, it may not be fully formed when you first see it. And the result of innovation rarely comes pre-packaged and ready to use. He understood that working with Ive, he had to protect him, nurture him, coax out the very best of Ive. It's not the first time that Johnny Ive actually had that type of relationship, someone betting on him, someone believing on him. His father was a silversmith, lecturer at a college, and his Christmas present to his son was to give him a day of his time during the Christmas break when no one else was around and help Johnny make whatever was in his mind. That's a fantastic image, isn't it? as we approach you know, this happy season, this gift from a father to a son, this gift of belief in talent, this gift of allowing that talent to flourish and be nurtured, this gift of raising it up and protecting it, but then letting it free into the world. Ive has created probably some of the most seminal products of our generation. I think this is one of them. It looks rather old-fashioned now compared to some of the sleek new things he creates. He's now probably the spiritual heir of jobs. He's the person who designs the human interface. It's interesting to me to note the fact that actually that desire, that talent, was probably born in that college silversmith workshop all those years ago. He talks about working in America being important because it creates an environment where ideas are nurtured, where there's a distinct lack of cynicism and scepticism, 
where people are interested and have the curiosity and intelligence and ability to try. It's interesting that he had to go to America to find that. As we talk about skill shortages here in the UK, it's interesting why people have to leave to become great talent. Two other Great Britons abroad, Anna Winter and Grace Connington, of course, they're the most influential women in fashion, at the top of Vogue and have been there for some time. What's interesting also about them, I think, apart from the fact that they've gone somewhere else, is how they are the collision between very complementary skills. You know, Anna is famously icy. You know, she is uh, reputedly the devil that wears Prada. And Grace Coddington is famous for her likability, the fact that she sees no hierarchy and really feels and expresses a democracy of ideas. And together they have that interesting combination that ideas, creativity, innovation can come from everywhere and needs to. You need to generate a lot of ideas to be able to find the good ones. But at some point, and this is where Anna will step in, you need to make the decision. You need to decide something to create a product. And that democracy of ideas and dictatorship of decisions is something that in an environment is one of the great things that can nurture talent. To feel that you're heard and listened to, but not necessarily to expect that every one of your ideas will be accepted, <coughs> is an environment that many of us would like to work in. Differences, though, can be divisive. Uh, and before I move on to the stones, it's just worth reflecting on diversity for a second. I think with um, Marjorie Scardino leaving Pearson, Cynthia Carroll leaving uh, Anglo-American, there will be only two women CEOs in the FTSE 100. So if diversity is at the heart of collaboration success, one has to challenge the fact that there isn't sufficient amounts of it in this country. Differences are at the heart of this group, uh, and uh, I'm excited to say that I'll be with them later tonight. Um, 50 years in an industry where one hit is quite remarkable. Surviving the second album is a bit of a feat. 50 years, given their very public walk on the wild side, is quite an achievement indeed. If you think about what makes them great, um, I suppose at its source, it's about the combination of instruments. It's Jagger's voice, it's the lead guitars of Keith Richards and Ronnie Wood, it's the steady backbeat of the drummer. It's that collaboration between differences that creates the harmony. But it's differences not only in individual instruments, but in, also in personalities. If I take the core dynamic of their creative engine, it's Jagger's ability to take charge, to be in the lead. When he writes a song, he always has an endpoint in mind. And he leads the band much like a CEO in the same way. He's the person that brought in Rupert Lowenstein to transform the band's finances. He's the person that brought in Michael Cole to transform the way a rock and roll concert is done. He's the person that brought in Mark Fisher, the person whose guerrilla architecture has reshaped what a modern concert can be. And actually, the Stones typically are generating about $550 million a tour these days. Their biggest concert they played was to 1.5 million people on Copacabana Beach, an audience that was a mile long. The sound delay from the first speaker to the last was in the region of five to seven seconds. If you take someone else, if you take Keith Richards, his glimmer twin brother. You know, if, if, if um, Mick is a CEO, Keith couldn't be more different. Keith talks about the joy of waking up in the morning, the pleasure of just breathing, 
there's very little planning that happens in Keith's life. It's a little bit more, uh, I guess, see what happens and see what comes along. He sees each song as a coat hanger around which he'll experiment every time. And that's the way he keeps it fresh 50 years along the line. But it's the creative abrasion between those two people, the very differences that creates the energy. Mick is rock, and Keith, in his own words, is roll. But it's the combination and fusion of those two things that often is the source of real energy and creativity. It's not talent alone, it's talent in combination. You add to that Ronnie. I mean, Ronnie's a fantastic character. He's still the new boy, 30 years in, uh, and is reputed to, he doesn't deny it, uh, have spent £20 million on drink and drugs. But the essence of Ronnie isn't his misbehaviour. The essence of him is he didn't take it all himself, he shared it. <laughs> He's the guy that is the heart of the team in terms of creating that harmony. He creates the cohesion. He's the person that, when they're split apart and not working together, is able to bring them together. Like a veteran peace negotiator, he knows that keeping talking will keep the band together. And then, of course, the drummer, the steady backbeat, stoical Charlie. In, in the essence of rock and roll, you know, their tours and early tours are the stuff of legend. You know, sort of, it echoes still, and for, for those of us that weren't even born in that time, you know, this is like a mythical age of rock and roll. Charlie has spent his time on tour drawing every single hotel room they've stayed in. He is the solid one. He's been with the same woman for the whole of his career. The rest of the band haven't, frankly. Um, <laughs> so how have they stayed together, and why is that interesting? It's interesting because 50 years is a long time, but it's also interesting because they've moved on from the traditional version of cohesion. And a simple version of cohesion, how do you get teams to want to work together and stay together, is you give them shared experiences. I was talking to someone about Cass MBA, and you know, that shared experience of the toughness of doing an MBA you know, kind of brings people together and creates networks that last for a lifetime. Well, certainly those early days of the Stones when they were living in the same flat, sharing the same van, sharing the same girlfriends, um, brought them together. Those were super strong experiences that bonded them. But now, now what keeps them together is actually the time they spend apart. They retreat to their French chateau and Caribbean hideaways, and the only time they reconvene, the only time the Rolling Stones works, is when the band is in motion. The team only forms when it has to. It's when they're touring or writing that they get together. But the thing, I suppose, that surprises me most about them is, despite having played to more people in more places all around the world, the dedication to rehearsal. Two months before every tour. This time it was in Paris, typically it's in Toronto. But two months of learning to play together again, finding their collective groove. That's real dedication. And that practice is something that we shouldn't forget. You know, we're here to talk about talent, and one of the things we'll talk about later on is apprenticeships. Part of the joy of the Stones is actually doing the work and doing it together. They get better through the work itself. And that notion of practice is probably one that we shouldn't forget. A Formula One team, and this is Ferrari, spends at least 2,000 um, hours practicing a pit stop something that lasts in the region of three to seven seconds, depending on whether fuel is involved or not. 20 people in complete choreography with a very short time frame. 
Anders Ericsson and his work popularized now by Malcolm Gladwell has pointed to the need for at least 10,000 hours to achieve mastery. And that deliberate practice is a feature of all great teams and all great talent. You don't get good by mistake. No one and no team gets better without that relentless pursuit and continuous repetition of the work they're meant to do. It's an interesting one, because Ferrari partly is, you know, of course it's an Italian team, but the rigor that underpinned their success, especially in the Schumacher days, was actually very British. And Formula One is an incredibly British sport. I think eight of the 12 teams are based here in the UK, and its long tradition has been drawn from actually the aeronautical uh, expertise post the Second World War, which is interesting, I guess, kind of given BAE is one of the sponsors here. The thing that I find interesting about it is actually that pursuit of perfection, that ability to become better, has two core ingredients. The belief that one can learn and one can improve. It's probably that idea that separates the good from the great. Perhaps more importantly than that is the actual discipline and dedication to do so. It's much apparent in the Olympics this summer. None of those athletes got there by mistake. The dedication required to improve oneself cannot be replaced by anything else. Um, this is a, a photograph of the fastest man in Formula One. And standing next to him is a young German, Sebastian Vettel, who recently became triple world champion. The fastest man in Formula One is actually this man over here, uh, a very British boffin, um, Adrian Newey. Adrian Newey has designed cars which have won over 100 Grand Prix. Uh, so Schumacher is the most successful individual driver. He's won about 91. Not about, actually, 91. So Adrian Newey has won three uh, won world championships, constructors' championships, with three different teams. He's the only person to have done that. And his story, again, is useful for us to reflect upon as we go through the rest of today and talk about talent. You know, he, he, um, he wanted to be in motorsport engineering from the age of six. Very early on, he understood that that was something he was fascinated in. He decided to go to the University of Southampton because of its long tradition with motorsports, but also its long tradition with aeronautical design and engineering. Aerodynamics was his thing. He's, he's rumored to be able to be the only person to see airflow, That's something that everyone else uses computer graphics to do. He still designs with a pen and paper. One of the things that's interesting, actually, is during his university time, he was struggling with maths, and he almost gave up. He almost gave up. But Ken Bergen, one of his lecturers, just gave him that added push, just gave him that added support, went out of his way to help him, got him over that hump, but then also provided and fought for the scarce resources to ensure he got the only motorsport project out of the, all of the projects that were going each year. That protection, that cultivation, that nurturing is essential for greatness to emerge. New went on, of course, with Williams to be incredibly successful, but he also suffered an incredible setback. And this is one of the things, again, about top talent and attracting it and nurturing it. It's not just about how high you can go, but it's how low you can survive. In a car that he designed, tragically, Ayrton Senna was killed. And for a couple of years, actually, there was the suspicion that it was the design of the car that had killed him, a car that knew he had led the design of. Probably the greatest driver of all time, Edson Senna. And to think that maybe your own work had contributed to that 
was a terrible, terrible setback for him. Perhaps the only way he recovered from it, having been cleared of charges of manslaughter, was because his passion, his unbridled enthusiasm for what he does, his competitive spirit, his ability to translate a driver's feel for the car into engineering excellence, never went away. That fire burned too brightly and brought him back. It's the heart of resilience, something that we need in a career. You know, it's rarely all the way straight to the top. There are bumps in the road. And to get over those bumps, we need to have passion. We need to have real fervor and feeling for what we do. I worked with the, uh, and I continue to work with the British Red Cross. And in January 2010, when the Haiti earthquake struck, it killed 200,000 people. It injured further 300,000 and displaced 1.5 million people from the poorest place in the Western world. At a time of disaster, most of us run away from it. The Red Cross manages to inspire and motivate people to run towards it. They have achieved what is a common purpose amongst their legions of staff, and it's a primarily volunteer-led organization, about saving lives, about making a difference. That is very encouraging. Certainly at the coalface, the people that actually are there, the emergency relief units, are very well trained, very well practiced in responding to disaster. But it's actually, for me, it was a woman in Wimbledon, a little old lady who worked in the Red Cross shop in the high street, who, when I talked to her about her work, gave me the real insight. She saw every item of clothing that she was buying or she was taking in or selling. No matter how small, no matter how old, the reason she saw it mattered was because she saw it in the context of saving lives. She saw a line of sight between her daily work and the contribution she was making to something much bigger than herself. She was connected to it. She saw it had purpose and it had meaning. In attracting great talent, in getting the most out of the talent we have, there is no substitute for that purpose and that meaning. A lot of the time, work is not that. Work is disconnected. Work is something we do. But if you want something to be really passionate and purposeful, if you want to see that in other people, you have to create something inside them. You have to ignite that flame that is theirs, but also connected to yours. If I summarize then a little bit of what we played with, and I hope to hear a lot more of it with other speakers this, uh, for the rest of today, great talent is often unreasonable. It's often audacious. It's often unreasonable also because it wants things that other people don't want, and it cajoles and forces those things upon us. But great talent is also interesting because it's nurtured. It has to be protected. It has to be coaxed out. Now, universities can play a great role in that, and every manager can too. Probably a big part of my, excuse me, my work, my research, is actually focused on the notion that no collective, sorry, no problem and challenge of con consequence can be tackled alone. Talent is, by definition, something that needs to be multiplied and amplified by other talent. Teams are perhaps the most human form of organization that bridges individuals to a greater bureaucracy. If we want to tackle the question of how to get the most out of talent today and attract the talent we need for tomorrow, perhaps the best place to start is with our own teams. <coughs> looking for the purpose and meaning in our work. I'm looking forward to the purpose and meaning of the rest of this morning. 
Thank you very much.